0: Shalom, and thank you for listening at BethEmmanuel.org. If you are enjoying these studies, help us get the message out and share them with your friends. Remember to support Beth Emanuel with your tithes and offerings by clicking on the Donate tab at bethemanuel.org. Why do we read the book of Ruth on the second day of Shavuot? No one is sure, and there are several competing explanations. The medieval Maxor Vitri records several opinions. We read Ruth because Ruth was a convert entering the covenant. And likewise, at Mount Sinai, all the children of Israel were like converts entering the covenant. Another opinion has it that we read Ruth at the time of the giving of the Torah to teach you that the Torah is only given through the afflictions of poverty. Another opinion identifies it as a seasonal story based on the verse that says, At the beginning of the barley harvest. Ruth one twenty two. And that's also my opinion, because we read the Song of Songs at Passover in the springtime because the imagery of Solomon's Song of Songs employs so much springtime imagery. And we read Ecclesiastes in the fall for the same reason. It's autumnal and winter imagery, contrasting old King Solomon against young King Solomon. And we read Esther at Purim, the date chosen by the casting of the lots. And we read Lamentations on the anniversary of the destruction of the temple, so it makes sense. Likewise, the story of Ruth, it seems to me, is a seasonal story, closely tied with the barley harvest and the wheat harvest, Ruth, is gleaning in the fields of Boaz and visiting the threshing floor and we have just completed the 49 days of the barley omer and Shavuot is considered the festival of first fruits for the wheat harvest so it's a natural fit. And this, that seems like a a reasonable explanation. Mach Vitri does not mention the most popular explanation in Judaism today. The popular explanation says that the book of Ruth is read on Shavuot as an homage to King David on the occasion of his birthday. King David was born on Shavuot. So, on Shavuot, you say, happy birthday, King David. Which came first, the association between David's birthday on Shavuot or the reading of the book of Ruth on Shavuot? I mean, that's a chicken-or-the-egg type of question, which depends on how old this tradition about David's birth on Shavuot might be. Is there any ancient evidence pointing in that direction? The idea of David's birthday on Shavuot originally started as a tradition that David died on Shavuot. The Jerusalem Talmud simply states, David died on Shavuot, So, how do we get from David died on Shavuot to David was born on Shavuot? The prophet Nathan said to David, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, 2 Samuel 7.12, and the sages reasoned David's days could not be considered complete unless he lived out the full number of his allotted years, which he had to borrow from Adam, by the way, Therefore, one who does not die on his birthday dies before his days are complete. And, that's why it's a good sign when someone dies on their birthday. It means that the person completed his days, he left this world on the same day that he entered it, fulfilling the words, when your days are complete. Therefore, if David died on Shavuot and he completed his days, well, he must have also been born on Shavuot. So, there you go. That's the most common explanation for why we read the book of Ruth on Shavuot. Because Ruth is the story of David's ancestors. The book concludes by telling us about the birth of David. It says, and to Boaz was born Obed, and to Obed was born Jesse, and to Jesse, David. Today I want to introduce you to a source predating the Jerusalem Talmud, which also seems to hint toward an association between King David's death and Shavuot. I'm talking about Luke's first-century Acts of the Apostles. We read in chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost, Shavuot had come. They were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues, as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Acts 2, 1-4. If you visit Jerusalem today, go up onto Mount Zion, the western hill of the city, just outside Zion Gate, right around the corner from the house and blossoming garden of Messianic Jewish luminary Pauline Rose, and just across from the magnificent Dormition Abbey, you will find an old mosque that has been converted into a synagogue and Beit Midrash. Muslims no longer pray there. The upper floor of the building, however, is a church. It's identified as the upper room of the house where Yeshua and his apostles conducted the last Seder. It's also identified as the room in which the apostles gathered on the day that the Holy Spirit descended on them in tongues of fire on the day of Shavuot. It's not. At the same time, the lower floor, the synagogue level, is identified as the tomb of the of David. It's not. Christians refer to the building as the Cenacle, and it's one of my favorite places to go in Jerusalem. Every time I'm in town I make sure to get over to Mount Zion to pray there. Firstfruits of Zion has done a lot of Hayasod filming there over the years. It's also a place where Toby Janicky encountered the prophet Elijah or so we presume. And I've told you that story before. In younger years I used the cenacle primarily as a shortcut when going between the Institute of Holy Land Studies and Zion Gate. It didn't seem to have a lot of visitors in those days. My first time in Jerusalem, an Arab man persuaded my father to allow him to show us around Mount Zion. He took us into the lower floor of the cenacle, pointed out the big limestone cenotaph that occupies it, and he said, King David's tomb. Then he took us around the corner and upstairs so that he could show us the upper room where the Last Supper had taken place and where the Holy Spirit had descended on the disciples in tongues of fire, and he said, The upper room. Then he held out his hand and asked for money, and we had to give him five dollars for giving us a tour. My father was not impressed with the tour guide. Hadn't Jerusalem been completely leveled and rebuilt several times since the days of the Master, how could this be the place of the upper room? Moreover, my brother assured us this could not possibly be the location of King David's tomb because the Bible tells us exactly where King David was buried, in the city of David, the original Jerusalem, which sits south of the Temple Mount. But my brother did say, you do have to respect that this location has a long traditional association with the Last Supper and King David's tomb. That was back in the 1980s. Eighteen years had elapsed since the Six-Day War. Since then, the location has become a busy holy place. Today, the first floor is divided by a mechitza. It's crowded with Haredi Jews praying psalms and with tourists to Jerusalem looking for David's tomb. The second floor is also crowded with tourists who want to see the room in which the Last Supper took place. It might have been in the 1980s that the Roman Catholic archaeologist Father Bargel Pixner conducted an excavation and study of the location. Pixner determined that the lower courses of stonework date from not long after the Roman destruction in 70 Common Era. He found Herodian-era stones being utilized in secondary use. In other words, the structure is built from the rubble of the city. Pixner also identified the structure. He did not identify it as a tomb. It's not the tomb of David. It's certainly not a mosque. Islam did not yet exist in the Hadrianic era, it's not a church, Christianity had not yet emerged as a separate religion in the late 1st century, and they did not start building churches for another 100 years. Pixner identified it as a synagogue, which is what it is today. According to Pixner, this synagogue was special. According to the story told by the stonework of the synagogue, it had been built from the ruins of Jerusalem between the two Jewish revolts during a period of time when Jews were rarely allowed into Jerusalem. The only permanent residents of the city at that time were the soldiers of the Roman 10th Legion. The Romans allowed Jews to visit the city only on Tishba'av. But Christian tradition says that the Jewish believers who had fled to Pella before the revolt were allowed to enter the ruins of the city and that they built a church on the location of the house of the upper room to commemorate the location. And according to Bargel Pixner, the Herodian era stones were not put together to form a church but a synagogue including a carved apse-like niche in the wall which might have housed the sacred scroll of the Torah. Okay, this is a little speculative, but let's go with the speculation. The idea is that the early Jewish believers under the leadership of Simon son of Clopas or Justice returned to the ruins of Roman occupied Jerusalem, sifted among the rubble of the houses on Mount Zion until they found the place where the house once stood in which the apostles had celebrated the last Seder with the master. They built a synagogue on the location to mark the spot. That's the idea. According to the church father Epiphanius, Seven synagogues were built on the ruins of Jerusalem, one of which was this Messianic synagogue. The Messianic one was the only one to survive into the Byzantine era, presumably because the Byzantines preserved it. And here's what happened to that synagogue. In the days of Emperor Constantine, the Byzantine church occupied the location and built a large church to commemorate the so-called Church of the Apostles. Dormition Abbey was originally part of that church. When the Muslims ran the Christians out of Jerusalem, the holy place became a mosque. When the Crusaders ran the Muslims out of Jerusalem, they built it into a Crusader church to commemorate the upper room. But since the upper room is upstairs, they thought they might use the lower floor as a shrine for the relics of St. Stephen, the first martyr. They called it the Tomb of St. Stephen. Then, the Church of St. Stephen complained. They said, We have St. Stephen's tomb over here. You can't have him. So, the Crusaders changed it to the tomb of David. That's the story. To this day, Christians, Muslims, and Orthodox Jews all believe that this location is the tomb of King David. It's not. But it does have a reasonable claim as the location of the upper room, in which Yeshua celebrated the last Seder. It's also supposed to be the upper room in which the disciples gathered on the day of Shavuot when they received the Holy Spirit. We can be fairly confident that's not the case because the disciples probably did not receive the Holy Spirit in an upper room on Mount Zion. Rather, they received the Spirit in the house in which they were sitting. That is, most likely, Solomon's portico the easternmost courtyard of the temple, where they gathered daily for prayer. Christian tradition misses that point because they did not understand the meaning of the words, When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. They assumed that one place might be any place, but the Torah obligated the disciples to be gathered in the temple that morning. Luke says, The Spirit filled the house where they were sitting. Later generations of Christian readers identified the house with the house of the upper room mentioned in the previous chapter immediately after the Ascension. When they had entered the city, they went to the upper room where they were staying, Acts 1.13. I find it unlikely that 10 days later, on the day of Shavuot, the apostles were still sitting in the same upper room when they should have been in the temple. What's more, it's hard to explain how Jews from all over the city were also present in the upper room, how Peter addressed a teaching to all Israel in the upper room, how 3,000 people were immersed and added to their number that day in the upper room. But all of these details check out in the temple. It's possible that the last Seder took place in a home on Mount Zion, and the cenacle might well preserve that location as tradition attests. But in any case, it's probably not the location of the miracle of the giving of the Spirit, and it's definitely not the location of the tomb of David. The real tomb of David is in the City of David. Just as Scripture says, Then David slept with his fathers, and was buried in the City of David. The term City of David refers to the original hill of the city, south of the Temple Mount, Mount Zion and Mount Moriah were not yet included in Jerusalem. They were outside the walls. Ironically, today, City of David sits outside the walls of Jerusalem. In the days of King David, it was just the opposite. City of David was inside the walls and the Temple Mount and Western Hill we call Mount Zion sat outside the walls. Ordinarily, Jewish practice does not put a tomb within the city walls. David was different. And so was his son Solomon, as it says in 1 Kings 11.43, and Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of his father David. So, both King David and King Solomon were buried inside the walls of the city of David. The sages puzzled over this, but it's true. In the days of the apostles, everyone knew where the tombs were. In Herod's Jerusalem, an affluent neighborhood of palaces and mansions occupied the hill of the city of David. In the midst of those wealthy palaces was the tomb of David and the tomb of Solomon. Everyone knew where they were. In fact, the tomb of David had been looted a hundred years earlier. The Hasmonean king John Hyrcanus looted David's tomb and took three thousand talents of silver to use as a bribe to get the Seleucid King Antiochus the Seventh to raise his siege of Jerusalem. Josephus says, Hyrcanus ventured into the sepulchre of David, who was recognized as one of the wealthiest of all kings, extracting approximately three thousand talents in currency. His newfound wealth allowed him to persuade Antiochus, promising him the same sum of 3,000 talents to lift the ongoing siege. This marked a significant turning point as Hyrcanus became the first among them to amass such wealth. It also enabled him to begin employing foreign mercenaries to fortify his military power. That's from Josephus, Jewish Wars. When King Herod heard about how much money John Hyrcanus had taken from David's tomb, he decided to loot the tomb too. Josephus tells this Indiana Jones-style story in his book, Antiquities of the Jews. Herod had poured immense resources into developing cities both within and beyond his kingdom. He had heard earlier that his predecessor, King Hyrcanus, had opened the tomb of David, extracting 3,000 talents of silver while leaving behind a significantly larger amount This information sparked a long-standing interest in Herod to explore the tomb himself, hoping to utilize the remaining wealth. On a quiet night, he discreetly opened the sepulcher, accompanied only by his closest and most trustworthy companions, keeping the action secret from the city. Unlike Hyrcanus, Herod didn't find any money. Instead, he found valuable gold furnishings and other precious items, all of which he seized. However, his curiosity wasn't satisfied. Herod wished to probe further, intending to reach the actual bodies of David and Solomon. This daring venture, however, was met with a frightful incident. Two of his guards were killed by a sudden burst of flame that surged towards those entering, or so it was reported. This experience left Herod terrified. He hastily exited the tomb and, in an attempt to commemorate the fearful event, constructed a monument made of white stone at the entrance of the tomb, a task that incurred significant expenses. That's Josephus from his book Antiquities. So here we learn that the tombs of Solomon and David were adjacent, which is what we would expect if we could find David's tomb we would also find Solomon's tomb. When Hadrian rose to power in the 2nd century, he promised the Jews that he would rebuild their holy city. He did not tell them that he intended to rebuild it as a Roman city dedicated to the Roman god Jupiter. He renamed Jerusalem, naming it after himself as Aelia Capitolina. He built a temple to Jupiter on the Temple Mount. That's what triggered the disastrous Bar Kokhba revolt. Rabbi Akiva declared Shimon bar Kosiva to be the Messiah, the Son of the Star. The Roman historian Cassius Dio says that the gods warned the Jews against revolting. He says, the Jews had forewarning before the war, for the tomb of Solomon, which the Jews regard as an object of veneration, fell to pieces by itself and collapsed. So, we learn from this that even after the fall of Jerusalem, people still knew where the tombs of David and Solomon were and still venerated them. We still know where they are. Today's visitors to Jerusalem can visit what I believe to be the real tomb of King David and the real tomb of King Solomon in the City of David. Much of the City of David has been opened as an archaeological park. Visitors to the Ir David archaeological park are usually eager to wade through Hezekiah's tunnel, an amazing watercourse dug by King Hezekiah's laborers that still flows with water from Jerusalem's Gihon Spring. It's adjacent to the Pool of Siloam, where the master sent the blind man to wash. But if you skip Hezekiah's tunnel and instead exit through the dry tunnel and go up on top of the city, you will come upon a place where archaeologists discovered an inscription called the Theodotus inscription, a first-century inscription describing a Greek-speaking synagogue in Jerusalem. Not unlike the one, the Book of Acts refers to as the synagogue of the freedmen. A short distance from that location, archaeologists uncovered two enormous horizontal shafts cut into the limestone. They are enormous First Temple era tombs, they extend to some depth. They originally had two floors and would have had an elaborate facade. Archaeologists readily identify these enormous holes in the ground as the tombs of the kings of Judah. The archaeologists cannot say so, but there can be little doubt which kings of Judah reposed in those tombs. This is almost certainly the tomb of King David and the adjacent tomb of King Solomon right next to it. One of the tombs is larger than the other, most likely Solomon's. Few people visit the location and those that do visit don't realize what it is they are looking at. So, try to imagine this situation. Across the city on Mount Zion, you have the Tomb of David, which is not a tomb at all, but an ancient messianic synagogue. This ancient synagogue has recently been converted into a synagogue. It's full of Orthodox Jews praying daily, three times a day, multiple minions utilizing it throughout the day. They have no idea they are praying in what was originally a messianic Jewish synagogue. Meanwhile, hardly anyone knows about the location of the real tombs of David and Solomon. You can freely walk right inside. There's absolutely nothing there but two enormous holes in the stone. No one is praying there, no minions, no mechitza. But in the days of the apostles, the people of Jerusalem all knew where these tombs were. They knew about how John Hercanus had looted the tomb of David and they knew the story how of how King David had attempted to do so as well. It's to this latter location that Simon Peter referred when, on the day of Shavuot, as he addressed the crowd in the temple, he said, Brethren, I may confidently say to you, regarding the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet, and knew that God had sworn to him, with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Yeshua, God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Acts two twenty nine through thirty two, citing Psalm sixteen. This text from Acts two explains why the Crusaders decided to identify the upper room with the tomb of David. They did not know Peter was in the temple when he said these things. They knew nothing about Shavuot. They assumed Peter was in the upper room of the Cenacle on Mount Zion, the so-called Church of the Apostles. When they read Peter saying, David's tomb is with us to this day, they decided that the house in which the apostles received the Spirit must also be David's tomb. And they were wrong on both counts. This brings us all the way back to the original point. I told you that we don't have any ancient sources that tell us when King David died or when he was born. The Jerusalem Talmud makes a passing comment mentioning that King David died on Shavuot. It doesn't say that in the Bible or in any earlier Jewish literature that I am aware of. But I said Luke's Acts of the Apostles seem to hint toward a first-century association between King David's death and Shavuot. Have you ever wondered, why is Peter talking about David's death? There are surely better texts for presenting the gospel than Psalm 16. Isaiah 53, for example. The point is that Peter's tying the message to Shavuot. And that's why he starts talking about the death of David. I take this as an indication that the tradition of David's death on Shavuot predates the Talmud by several centuries, and that it was already a common idea in common circulation by the days of the apostles. So, we can take it on apostolic authority, so to speak, that David died on Shavuot, and if he lived out his full length of days, as the prophet Nathan predicted, then he must have also been born. On Shavuot. All of this demonstrates that our faith in Yeshua, the son of David, has a real historical basis. It's not just made up. Yes, things are completely confused now. They are upside down now. Things are not what they seem. But we know which end is up. Yeshua holds the key of David. His tomb he left behind him empty on the third day. God neither abandoned him to Sheol, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Yeshua, God raised up again, to which the apostles were all witnesses, as it says in Ruth 4. All the people who were in the gate, and the elders said, We are witnesses. Blessed is the Lord who has not left us without a Redeemer today, and may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age. And learn from me and find rest for your soul.